My name is Era, and I'm the host of the Tamil Creator Podcast. I chat with creators from all over the world to share their stories and discuss hot topics in a way that I hope inspires, educates, and entertains you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Tamil Creator. I'm your host, and today I have what I like to call, who I like to call one of the OGs of kind of the media space, especially in the South Asian slash Tamil space. I've known of her and kind of communicated with her, you know, through email, things like that. But this is actually the first time I'm actually connecting with her face to face. I know it's digitally. Uh, her name is Ashanti Omkar. And for those of you that don't know, she's got an impressive list of accolades and things that she's done. But uh, the key highlights kind of are she's a film critic, BBC broadcaster, film festival creator, voiceover artist, which I didn't know about, features writer and speaker. Um, I, like I said, I've known her from a, a distance and my interactions with my work at tamilculture.com. Uh, the big thing, you know, you might know her for is the Ashanti Omkar, Ashanti Omkar show on BBC Asia Network. Um, so without further ado, I'll let Ashanti kind of introduce herself, her background, and really kind of how she got to, you know, spark this love of, you know, the creative arts and, you know, um, not just being in the space, but celebrating those in the space as well and kind of carving out this niche that she's kind of done for the last, I would say, two decades. So Ashanti, I'll let you take it away. Spot on. You've certainly done your research, Ara. It's really love to, lovely to catch up with you and all the listeners of The Tamil Creator. Um, well, what, what can I say? I began my journey from being, you know, a very normal kid who had studied Carnatic music at school was really into music and film, but never really thought it would be a career. I'm sure everybody here who's listening in will resonate with that because a lot of us don't kind of, now, nowadays young, young children can aspire to become a YouTube star. But back in the day, there was no chance. I mean, for us to even get, get into a, re a recording studio, I was lucky to do that when I was younger just because I was studying music at, uh, at school for my GCSEs. But basically we moved to England from Nigeria. So my journey began, I was born in Sri Lanka to Jaffna Tamil parents. And I, well, they, via Colombo, they, they grew up in Colombo. And we moved to Denmark, we moved to Nigeria, and then we couldn't go back because of the war. And it was a safe space to come to England. So we decided to settle in the UK. And so I had that very typical Tamil upbringing in that sense, because we lived in an area that had a temple and, you know, lots of Asians. In fact, the biggest culture shock for me was going to a school that was 98% Asian, South Asian, I mean, and this meant that I was seeing, you know, girls wearing hijabs and shalwar kameez to school, while some of us were wearing the, the the uniform. And the dress code was actually allowed. Where that was something I I'd certainly never seen in Nigeria. So coming coming into the UK, age twelve, was a bit of a culture shock. The other way around from what most people of Tamil origin would probably experience. And for me, I'd never actually been to, you know, for example, getting hold of Tamil movies or going to a cinema to watch a Tamil film. All, all of these things just didn't exist in Nigeria. We didn't even, you know, we didn't have a temple. So the shrine was actually what my parents would have created in the house. So for me, England was an awakening to South Asian culture in general, just because 
in Nigeria, they beamed us Bollywood films. So they were only in Hindi, no subtitles. But we luckily used to get a stash of, you know, cassettes <laughs> back in the day of uh, these old kind of Rajnikanth films and films like Sindhu Bhairavi that I watched again and again. So I kind of grew up watching all of this stuff. My parents, very culturally rich, into music in a big way. My dad, a mathematician, my mom, a teacher. And we we had a really idyllic life in Nigeria. So coming to England was an awakening in many ways. And I went a very kind of very normal route in that sense, because uh, school school went well. I did A-levels. I went to university. I studied, actually, I began studying mathematics and computer science. But by the end of it, I, I, I graduated with marketing, management, and computer science. So I had changed my university subjects because thankfully it was a modular course. And there were some things I was naturally good at, but computer coding, for example, I wasn't good at. So that was something that I kind of realized very early, early on. These things were not for me, sitting in a basement coding, not my thing. But again, didn't really think I would be doing what I do now, you know, being on television or being on radio, you know, writing, broadcasting. The only thing I wrote was essays and finally a project, you know, I had penned most of it, though we did it in a group. And I remember my whole kind of team all said, you've got to do the presentation. You're the most vivacious out of us. <laughs> and interestingly enough, at that at that moment was an interesting point because the guy who was doing the videoing of this project, he said to me, you should be on television. What are you doing, you know, do, presenting a project about databases? <laughs> you know, it's like, it really confused him. And I, I, again, never thought of it in any way. And then life went on. I, I worked in the corporate world. So I went straight in working for, you know, I worked with Dresdner Bank. And then I ended up at Oracle, who, who are obviously a massive kind of corporate. And I went on to work for SAP Business Objects. I went on to work for the Hilton Group you know, the Pepsi Cola, the, the list kind of goes, goes on. And I was always one of those people who loved making those jumps. So a lot of people used to say to me, why would you leave Oracle and seek a job at Pepsi Cola, that kind of thing? Because they didn't quite understand the idea of a portfolio career. And back then it was a very rare thing. People didn't really do that. But for me, it's something that I have pursued kind of vehemently in my life because I've always felt that variety is the spice of life. And that I think is the creative in me coming out because that was a side of me that was a bit dormant because yes, I studied Carnatic music. I won a gold medal and I won a Croydon music prize, but I was still working in like a tech company. And all of these things kind of didn't quite match, you know, like I, at university, you know, in those days we'd sneak in to a Mani Ratnam film at midnight because that's the only time you could catch it at Wimbledon Odeon. A friend of mine and I, we used to go to these films or we'd try and get to a place called Edgware to these little dingy cinemas to watch like the latest Bollywood film or the latest, if anything came out with Air Rahman in it, I would want to watch it, you know, Air Rahman's music, I should say. And so I was doing all of those things in parallel in many ways. And my friends used to say, you're such a telly addict, 
you know you're why are you collecting stacks of magazines and reading them you know why do you have marie claire and vogue and stuff like that in your room why do you have film fair and stardust but these were all things i was really into i just didn't realize i would be making magazines like that or i would be working in them and time just kind of went on i've, I've got a long kind of backstory my, my answer to your question is already so long but you know i basically got to a point where i met i went to a seminar i met a woman who was running a reggae magazine she said to me hey um, you're really passionate about music it was a music seminar you're really passionate about music why don't you think about writing something for me and my first reaction was the last thing i wrote was an essay at university <laughs> for marketing so do you really think you know and she said well if you can speak it to me and explain why you like it you can write it too and she gave me a word count and i did it for her very quickly within deadline gave her pictures and she was so impressed she said listen the apache indian he is um, you know he's a reggae star wear a reggae magazine i've never had him in the magazine can you interview him and because i had this tech kind of that my world has revolved around tech it was quite easy for me to find a contact for him my first ever interview was a patch indian and you know even he was a little surprised by some of the questions i was asking him because i spoke about air rahman and him lovebirds and that song you know about how we want tamil songs to go all over the world and that's something that has stood stood in my mind for a very very long time speaking to him made me feel that yes this is something i really want to do it still took over a year after that meeting before i went into this full time because you're always sitting there thinking should i do this it's a risk it's a huge risk nobody can see or understand what i want to do with my life nobody can and there was no path i mean i've had to create that path in many ways so i just just decided to do it and you know i guess i was very stubborn about it and and decided to quit the tech job sell my car downsize my life completely take a kind of recce trip to india to explore you know the the possibilities and then come back and in some ways i restarted my life at that point and there i was doing media you know and it it just kind of ricocheted from there because i think sometimes you know when they say if you build it they will come i truly believe in that because that's something that i feel like i i I've, i've started to do that um I well I've started to do it now I I've, I've, I've done it for the last like you said two decades it feels really surreal to say that number <laughs> it's like whoa that's a long time but I guess it just has has fallen into place you said like a ton of great stuff there I guess before we get into the meat of it I think two things are whenever I talk to anybody from the UK anything they say always sounds more sophisticated with your accent <laughs> so I'll just say that and there's another funny story me and Ashanti talked about just before we kind of popped on air which is somebody had on the podcast recently or before Kamuta was a good friend of mine Ashanti actually it's like it's like the two degrees of separation the Tamil community versus six degrees it's like oh she actually held Kamuta as a baby she in Nigeria where they both Nigeria. grew up which is crazy I was a child and she was a baby you know yeah. I it was a really surreal moment to see her all grown up and then I was checking out the Tamil creator and I thought I know her <laughs> and yeah. Manjula Manjula Selvaraja from yes. Canada yes. also a very good friend grew up together in Nigeria we watched superman together the old superman movie <laughs> we went around to her house and watched it so it really is a small world it's so crazy yeah because i know that manjula and kamuta i think also know each other through that nigeria connection um 
and then obviously you talked about money right now i think in the world of tamil films i think i don't really watch much tamil film except if it has rajinikanth or if it's a money ratnam directed film like all of those films are amazing um and then that comment around you know i think what ar raman said of what i've actually heard echoed by some of the younger people in music that i've kind of spoke to so i've spoken to like people like yadsen or like pierre ragu like folks like that that have said they want to make tamil music just as popular mainstream like just like we would sing spanish songs and we don't speak spanish but we're like english speaking we want to make tamil songs hip and cool that people that are not tamil will actually sing along and kind of jive with it so all of that i kind of um jive with i think one of the things i want to kind of really highlight was you talked about working in tech while having this creative side and you're kind of balancing day and night those two sides of you and obviously you know the 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 the, the artistic side of you wants to kind of come out um how did you start to create this brand or name for yourself uh, you know well before it's time because you know now in this day and age the macro trends are let's talk about people of color and like all these groups that are in our, that weren't highlighted before but you did this like starting about 20 years ago when this was kind of like why would people like there was no reason for people to care about it but you made people care so how did you do that wow you know i think again I'll just go back to that one saying if you build it they will come because there was a market for it obviously for for kind of my brand of work what I wanted to put out I created the brand I was you know like back in the day when I worked for Oracle I created this website talking about like what what my passions were and even at that point I put my email address and back then it was a hotmail address <laughs> and I a lot of emails from people around the world who would connect with that i was on music forums at the time talking about music and ragas and all that stuff so it's something that i kind of grew up with in that sense because for me at that point i was you know kind of i was very young i was in my early 20s and this this became a part of my life and i think i just extended that that little brand that i created because by kind of 2006 my space had come into four i remember having some 8000 musicians you know that i had connected with through my space and some you know including some very big names and it was interesting because social media was just starting to trend at that time and i remember i had a reticence to get onto facebook i, I had loads of people messaging me saying you should get onto facebook but i think i just used a lot of the technology i just leveraged the technology i had given to me and it was all free i mean i even my first website was created on tripod it was a free web page you know back then everyone was experimenting with the with the internet you know and then after after a few years it was google pages and then after a few years it was wordpress now with substack so it's just keeping up with the technology trends i guess and even even you know with instagram i in in early days i didn't really feel like i would do much with it but then suddenly you know once i started posting those pictures getting that engagement i realized it was a, a a good thing to follow so it was just about building i mean i think i just knew what i wanted to put out and the rest of it just came very simple answer because there were blood sweat and tears behind it but that's the crux of it this episode is sponsored by nobody that's right nobody so if you could be kind enough to hit that subscribe button that would mean a lot to me do you think um you know part of everyone's journey is you know luck in the sense that not like you know it was all luck but in the sense that you happened to move to london which 
is, you know, I would say one of the big media or entertainment centers in the world. Like, you know, if you look at New York, LA, London, do you think living in London also gave you some kind of, you know, just like me being in Toronto, I'm fortunate to be in one of the biggest, you know, Tamil centric populations outside of like South India and like Sri Lanka. Do you think your location in London had any part to do with kind of where you are today or like the journey you kind of took? So I'll tackle this in two parts because one is I don't believe in luck in that sense because I have, though all, all that you're seeing and hearing is very glossy, I've had a really hard life. You know, I've, I've come, come through an abusive marriage. I've, you know, obviously come through a war where our home was burnt in, in Colombo, et cetera, et cetera. So I won't say that any of this is down to luck. I do think it's hard work. It's perseverance. Yes, perhaps, you know, my parents chose the right place to be you know, we could have ended up going, going to, you know, most of our friends actually moved to Canada, mm. but you know, the, the choices were very, you know, for, especially for those of us in places like Nigeria, we were, we, we had the choices of going to Canada, going to America, going to Australia, and none of us could obviously go back to the motherland in any form. So uh, for, for my, from my perspective, yes, that was a nice thing. London in some ways feels like the center of the world and it's really nice that there's a lot of culture going on in London. So the second part of it is, yes, London certainly has been the center of my world. Whether it will always be that, I don't know, but for now I love it and I do feel that it does play a big part because we have a lot of things going on in London, especially I think at that point when I was doing that, you know, that move and that crossover, there was a lot going on because Bombay Dreams, Air Rahman had Bombay Dreams come out in a theater in Broadway in the UK. So those things were hugely inspirational. There was a lot to write about because the cultural scene was actually very vibrant in the UK. I can't say the same today. A lot has changed. I mean, I'm not talking just during pandemic times. Even in the last five years, we haven't got the same amount of vibrance as there used to be because there's not as many grants. It's very difficult to get, say, say you have a, a fantastic concert that you can put together. You've got the best talent in the world, but getting them onto a stage in the UK is, is extremely difficult. And we're constantly fighting this battle. So in some ways, yes, uh, London, brilliant city, lots going on. In other ways, I think that you just have to make the best of your environment. And in this digital age today, I think that that doesn't matter as much. I think it did matter, definitely, like you say, two decades ago, it did matter, you know, that big renaissance that happened with Bombay Dreams, you know, because Air Rahman was in all the British newspapers, you know, and Andrew Lloyd Webber was talking about him. And that gave you know, gave us a lot of credibility, you know, and then the next moment we had like that was when Air Rahman won two Grammys and two Oscars and a BAFTA, you know, that was a, a fantastic moment. But then after that, you know, what, what has happened since, say, 20, well, 2009, then 2010, 2011, things were going really well, Bollywood films hitting the top 10 in the UK, but there has been a decline with all of that. The whole marketplace has changed. We are looking at streamers now, you know, how can you get the best deal to get your film on? You know, I'm, uh, I, I won't mention the name of the director, but somebody we, we probably both love very much was talking about, you know, how do we, how do we get our films out to broader, broader, 
you know, regions just because we feel that Netflix and Amazon are doing such a great job of it. We are now thinking of how we'll make films for that format so they'll look great on a small screen and not just for the big screen. So these are the conversations that are going on because the world has changed. Yeah, I think one of the comments I want to hit on there was, it was a kind of a, a small comment that you made around kind of the fight for dollars or attention around the creative arts. Like to, you know, I feel like maybe it's slowly changing, but I feel like the creative arts has always been underappreciated. It's like artists, whether it's musicians, movies, et cetera, like art paint, painters, et cetera. There's an expectation that they kind of give away their product or their art for free. It's almost like it's like um, a given that, you know, it should just be free and put out to the world. But, you know, if you think about it, all the, the things that make life really great are just things like going and enjoying a film with your friends, listening to a music or something that stimulates this great thought in your mind. It's like it really makes life more flavorful. But like I, I used to be like that thinking, oh, I should get these things for free. But I've definitely in the last five, 10 years changed my stance on how appreciative I am of people in that space, mainly because I'm not very creative. Um, so why do you think that we still have that battle or do you think let me just get in there and say yes. that you are a very creative person in my eyes you are <laughs> what you have built with both Tamil culture and and uh, the Tamil creator is that you you have a creative mindset and you built on it so but anyway I can I can go on about that <laughs> thank you I, <laughs> I guess my question is like why do you think the tide is slowly turning around this fight for more attention and resources for people in the creative space because yes the people that are the big names they are going to get the money and all that but there's a lot of people that could potentially be like those people or or change people's lives with their art but they're not getting the funding or attention that they deserve so how do you think we deal with this or do you think it's slowly changing oh gosh i mean i can just speak from personal experience the fact that even today there will be people who'll ask me to write for free or to come on to a broadcast slot for free. And I'm not talking small publication or a charity. You know, I am talking big media houses who will still try and get you to do stuff for free. Just because, like you said, people's expectations are that, oh, it's just talking, right? Surely you can do that. They don't realize the the, the fact that I can prep for a talk like that in, you know, in, in 10 minutes is because of my 20 years of experience. They don't look at that that space it's like oh how can you create a radio show in just a space of you know i don't know eight hours and i'd say that's because i've been doing it for seven years and that's why i can and i've got the contacts you know to 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 make this happen the networking has happened and the you know like malcolm gladwell said in outliers you know it's putting in those ten thousand hours of hard work and gruel that 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 makes these things then happen for us so i have to say that that is a very slow change i hope it will change there are a few big uh, big changes happening where musicians are querying you know is spotify doing the right thing by me is amazon doing the right thing by me am i getting enough of these royalties the same thing goes for filmmakers who are saying are amazon paying enough for my film for me to show. And I would say there's one company in Canada, in fact, Marja, who are trying to readdress that balance. That's very impressive. But a lot of people are not caring about that space. A lot of people are not saying, okay, how are we going to fund these artists? What is the future of these artists? What will happen to them next? I don't think it's happening enough. And I think that a lot of people just have to somehow balance that and say, okay, my creative side, like, like, let me give you an example. In the UK, 
a lot of the people who are musicians, let's say, take an Abby Sampa. You know, she's been on The Voice UK. She has made songs that have millions of views on YouTube. But Abby Sampa is not signed to a record label. She has a full-time job as a dentist. And she's doing this. You mentioned Priya Raghu. Priya Raghu has worked, you know, for the airlines uh, in, in Switzerland. And she has done her music. And it's only now that she's actually saying, here's a full-time thing. I, for example, when I quit my IT job and, you know, having this corporate career with monthly salary that's, you know, large, I had to just downsize completely. Everything from selling the car to, you know, living in a smaller place. Tamil, Tamils have not approved of my, my life choices in that sense because, you know, the, the status symbols are those things, you know, having that car. I've got like a personalized plate that I've not used in 15 years. It's sitting there. I'm looking to sell it because... I don't think I'll be driving again, but, you know, these are all things that, you know, weren't approved of at all. You know, it's like, oh gosh, your flat is so small. But for me, it's like, this is, you know, this is home for me. I'm very happy with it. But, you know, the outside perceptions are very different. And this is what we have to keep balancing. And when you're a creative, you just need your, it's just you, yourself and your, your studio or your, you know, that one table that gives you a portal into the world. And this is what I think is changing with the younger generation who are looking at those things and saying, okay, it's not just this status symbol that I need, you know, that white picket fence and this huge house with five bedrooms, that might not be what I want in my life. So things are changing, but it's a slow, slow change because changing society is very difficult and changing society that escaped a war that had to then go out there and rebuild their lives. You know, parents, uh, MIA was on my, my, my radio show at the BBC a few years ago. And it's something that she said as well. She said, look, you know, there are parents who came in as a seamstress or worked at a petrol station and their child is a doctor who's saving lives on a daily basis. And that has happened within one generation, maybe two generations. The fact that that has happened is a very big deal for the Tamil community. And it's very commendable. It's great that Abby's a doctor and a singer and, and has millions of views on, on YouTube. But a lot of people are not making that one, one choice. They are balancing those two things. Some of them love it, you know, Aravindan Bahiradan, for example, fantastic flautist, does arangetrams, does his own concerts, but he also is a doctor, you know, so, and I've seen and met many of them. MC Sai, you know, he's one of the most popular rap rappers, Tamil rappers in the world, also crossed over to, you know, to South India in Tamil movies. And MC Sai has a full-time job at Heathrow Airport. You know, he juggles that with being an entrepreneur. You know, he's he's created some kind of Bitcoin type thing. He's he's working with restaurants. So he's doing all these things because he knows, you know, about financial and wealth management. And I think a lot of artists don't don't think about that. And I always say, look at him, look at MC Sai. You know, he is making so much money from his YouTube channel. He doesn't need to do any of these other things, but he does those things because he's passionate about different things in life. And back in the day, we were always boxed into one thing. And I think you, me, and so many people that you showcase on Tamil culture, they're people who are saying, well, that's not just me. I'll, I will work in a corporate job, but I'll also sell the best petticoat and sari blouse and show people how to drape on the internet and I'll be successful at it. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. I think, um... You nailed on a topic that I'm super passionate about, which is 
thinking like money in the sense that not like having a lot of it, but knowing why you need money, how much you need, and just kind of crafting your life decisions around that. So like, just like you, you know, I have like me and my wife just had twins like nine months ago. Most people are like, thank you. Yes. So most people are like, oh, expecting that we would, you know, maybe move to a house or a bigger space. We currently live like in a, in a two bedroom condo. And for us, that's, you know, good enough for now. Maybe we reevaluate later, but for us, it's like, how do we minimize financial pressures unnecessarily so that we can focus on the things that we love to do, whether it's work-related or life-related so that, you know, there's less financial overhead so you can, you know, pick and choose what you want to do versus being forced to do things because you took on, you know, a bigger house or a nicer car or whatever the case might be. So I love the fact that you brought that up because I, I want to kind of touch on that. And, you know, what are some things, so you mentioned like you moved into a smaller space and so, like in terms of like your money management, do you think about investing quite a bit in terms of how do I have like passive income so I can like, um, you know, do the things that I love whenever I want? So this is a fortuitous moment in many ways talking to you today, because that is something that I need to do. Mm. I want to do, but I grew up without it around me. I never thought of it. Same, same goes for my husband. He never thought of these things. But in the pandemic, I think this time that we had where we weren't traveling, we were able to have these discussions at home. It really has made us think, you know, what do we invest in? And we, we don't have children and we won't have children. So I've, I've, I've had to battle through endometriosis, which is a fertility disease. It's a chronic condition. And because of that, you know, at one point we had to make a decision, you know, are, how important are children in your life? Can you look after those children? Is your health, you know, a, a potential issue, you know, because, you know, looking after children is, is, is a full-time job, you know, you really have to put in 100% into that and everything else has to be built around that. So it's something we really thought long, long and hard about. And I decided to have a hysterectomy. So, you know, but one body part less, no children in sight. So that kind of has given us uh, an opportunity to say, okay, our legacy doesn't mean having children. So we're not saving for children, but at the same time, are we going to invest in, in something? You know, what are we going to invest in? And honestly, I don't have much in that sense. I've got shares from Oracle, you know, things like that. But I have to be very honest with you. It's something that I need to do and I want to do. And it's very much on my mind. But, you know, I just have not done it to date. And it does feel, you know, when everybody's talking about financial education and I just think to myself, you know, I live a good life. I, you know, have dis dispensable income. I, I'm a foodie and we eat, you know, things that we love. And, and all of that, but at the same time, do we build this nest egg? And I'm an only child as well. And I think in some ways, my parents, you know, up until a certain age, my parents looked after me so well, <laughs> I didn't really need to think about those things. And once I started earning my own money, it was like, well, I'll spend it on things I love. But I have had that lifestyle, the white picket fence, the big car, you know, it's like, oh, I've got this two liter engine, <laughs> you know, Day was such a big deal, you know, and it's like, oh, look, I've got GPS in my car and I've got this personalized number plate. And then just shedding all of that completely and saying, 
I'll take public transport. And it was an adjustment, you know, saying, oh, I'm, I'm doing all that. But, you know, when I re-evaluate evaluate my life, my, my husband's never even driven. He's not even got a license. That's, you know, that's, that's so, so we're kind of talking to each other saying we're really eco-friendly. We have no children. We have no car. You know, so the the only things we're really spending on is electricity and, you know, electricity, all the bills at home and on, on traveling. So in some ways we have we have invested in ourselves and we've invested in going to the movies and all of those things rather than perhaps in the sort of investments that that you've mentioned. And and we should I mean, we should be buying Bitcoin and all of those things, but <laughs> highly volatile. You know, I think I'm one of those people who likes taking certain risks, but not others. So I'd like, so when I spent that money going to India, for example, that was very important for me. It was a large chunk of money, but I didn't, you know, I didn't think twice. I was like, let's buy the latest Sony video camera. Let's buy a nice camera to take pictures. And I just embarked on that journey to India. And that awoken my life in a, in a huge way. So I truly believe that sometimes the investment doesn't have to be in kind of monetary things. And it's just like what you said, scaling back, saying, look, we're happy how we are. We can live like this. And at some point we'll, we'll, we'll move on up, but uh, you know, we'll work towards that. And I'm always about bettering myself. I think investing in yourself, I think people talk about investments, you know, it's like a cliche statement. I've heard a lot, but it's actually true. The, the best investment you can make is in yourself in terms of your skill set, your experiences, your connections, because if you're if you're if you're a long-term thinker, all those things will pay off if you do them correctly. So I fully agree. Did you know that every time you left a five out of five review for this podcast, a Tamil parent lets their child pursue a career in the creative arts? Okay, that's probably not true. But if there's a chance that it is, do you really want to jinx it? Leave a review. Do it for the young creative in you. You also mentioned kind of MC Sai as well, kind of as this person in entertainment that's like an entrepreneur. Um, I feel like you've kind of taken that and all with all the different things that you've kind of done. Like, you know, when we touched at the beginning, like you're, a, you, I don't know if you still do all this work, but like film festival curator, voiceover artist, like, I, I guess you're almost like a brand and like an entrepreneur um, on your own when you think about all the things you do. So maybe talk a bit about that because working for somebody versus having to search at opportunities on your own, which is what entrepreneurs have to do are two different things and require two different mindsets. Absolutely. You know, what's very interesting about your question is that I have been only thinking about this side of things again in the last two years. It's the pandemic that's made me kind of look at that and say, actually, this is more, am I actually a creator, content creator, or, you know, a radio personality, a public figure, or am I actually just an entrepreneur who has created a brand around myself? And I've got this portfolio of career, which I have always wanted. That's that's exactly what I wanted to do. And it's true. I, I, I had gone to, it was actually a Tamil society at Queen Mary's in London. They'd invited me as part of a careers fair. Interestingly, we had all done a panel discussion and I'd spoken about, you know, media and all of these things, but not a single Tamil kid who was there. All these, they were, when I say kid, they were like 18 year olds who were at university. Not a single one came up to me afterwards for the after questions. They all went to only those people who were working for Shell, 
who were working at tech companies, et cetera. And, and, you know, there was a guy who was on the panel with me, a doctor, and they all, you know, loads of them kind of went to him and talked to him about medicine, but they just, you know, they didn't get what I did. They, I don't think they saw it as being something that was viable, but one of the other boys who was there, Harry, um, you know, he's, He's somebody who, you know, he's worked for Apple and he now is a lecturer and I've known him for a while. He started a, a, Tamil, a Tamil school, actually. It's a music and a, a, a music school and a school that actually teaches Tamil to kids in his, in his vicinity. And he had invited me years ago to kind of his inauguration. And I was so proud to see this young and at that point he was about 22 doing this and Harry Vigneshwaran, his name is. And he said to me, and I said, oh, you know what? This is kind of a weird one because we're all sitting here it's like almost like a careers fair, but people want to talk about entrepreneurship and I don't think I am one. And he said, well, I think you are. And even then it didn't quite strike me, but he said, you've got way more entrepreneurial experience than anyone here, you know, it's like, what, what are you saying? You know, why, why do you think you're not? And I then thought about it, that kind of triggered something in me to think about it. And then life took over, stopped thinking about it. And then the pandemic happened. And that gave me a, a chance and a space to start, start thinking more laterally. And I've always believed in this lateral thinking and the fact that we should make lateral moves with our careers as well. That one thing is not what defines you. There's many things that can define you and that you can put your time, time into. And yes, I think that the next journey for me is an entrepreneurial one, actually. And it's fortuitous we're having this, this chat because one of my friends, he's a business guy called Chris, and we were talking about it. And it's something that I said to him that, look, I am shedding off certain things because there's a lot of activism I want to do about representation matters, for example. And all of these things need a different facet, a different version of Ashanti Umkar to be out there. And there's a lot of stuff, you know, in, in terms of ra ra you know, racism and diversity and things that I feel we need people shouting about. And I've been doing it behind the scenes and I need to do it more. So slowly but surely, I am making those moves and saying I'm going to be cutting certain things out of my life and moving into, into new things. For example, just, I mean, if, if you didn't already know, I mean, I have quit my job at the BBC Asian Network. So my radio show, I've done my last broadcast on that and I'm starting, you know, I, I, I don't quite know what comes next, but for me, my work in film is happening in the background. So in fact, today, as we're speaking, we've got a film screening happening at one of our cinemas in London and one in Birmingham as well. We've got this online player, lovelifathome.com. I've done interviews with people like Shruti Hassan and Vignesh Shivan and Manjuvaria and lots of other people. So I've curated Q and A's on, that, uh, on the platform. So there's lots of stuff happening on the film side that keeps me really busy. And of course I have to watch loads of films for my job, which is, which is lovely. I mean, people think it's very easy. It's not as easy as it sounds, but at the same, because everything that you're doing, you're doing with an analytical mind. So back in the day, I was just chilling to Urvashi by Air Rahman, but now I'm thinking, oh, did, did Cody Wise do it right? Did he get those lyrics right to fit into this classic Tamil song? So these are the things that, that have changed in my life now in many ways, because I'm having to analyze everything. But at the same time, I'm doing what I really, really love and want to champion. So entrepreneurial um, ideas, that that side of things is something. I'm, and Tamils inherently are entrepreneurs because 
I have seen this. So when we moved to, to London, my parents were completely not. So my dad comes from academia. My mom, you know, comes from a very kind of, you know, they were very set in their ways, you know, as a, as a family as well. She had, you know, her, her sisters and her and her brother. And they were brought up in a very kind of, you know, very safe environment. So being, being this person who jumps in and says, I'm going to open a shop is not something they would do. Although when I think back to it, my mom, she opened her own nursery school in Nigeria. So there we were in this little corner of Nigeria, which is now Boko Haram territory. So we couldn't even go and visit. And she opened her own nursery school. I mean, we had, I think some 30 or 40 kids every day. So while I was at school, she had a nursery school and I'd come back home and see all these kids. So she was an entrepreneur because she was making her money through that, you know. And this is what's very interesting because we don't see ourselves, we see them as being very safe people. But when we moved to England and East London, I mean, this was where it was very interesting because the war in, in Sri Lanka was at a, a, you know, getting to a, quite a peak at that, at that point. And there were a lot of people who came down from Sri Lanka. They knew that people needed kotharoti and mutton rolls and, you know, people needed their karvapala, you know, the curry leaves and, and their niru's curry powder. So they started creating it. So that area has become a little, you know, it's like a little, little Jaffna, I would call it, you know, and you've got these pockets, you've got this in, in Canada as well, right? Was it Rainbow Village, which had, you know, an Eingaran shop there and all this stuff? I don't, I don't know what they call it, but I mean, Scarborough pretty much is little Jaffna, yeah. yes. Yeah. So. I mean, I when I came to Canada as a teenager, I went and saw a film, you know, Tamil film in the cinema, and yes. I was able, you know, my cousins were buying me mutton rolls all the time. And <laughs> I remember the Hopper Hut in, in Canada. So, you know, this is what I've seen. And now you've got the kitchen gorilla who's making his own ice cream flavored mm -hmm. like firm. And so, I mean, the Canadian scene is, is beautiful because I think that you guys have been, your parents have given you more carte blanche to explore these things than those of us in the UK. I think that is slowly emerging over here. We had a George Alagaya on our screens. We had a Krishnan Gurumurthy and a Naga Banchetti on our screens, watching them read the news, but they were so English to us. If we closed our eyes, we couldn't tell that there was an Asian person doing all that. Whereas I think for you guys in Canada, you built it ground up. So you've got your own, you know, everything from, from newspapers to the fact that there's a lot going on in the mainstream in Canada and you've got your own Maitre Ramakrishnan now, you know, breakout star who's moved into Hollywood. So it's, it's wonderful. No, you're right. And kind of, as you talk about going into the entrepreneurial side and just, I don't know if you'll be more kind of public versus kind of behind the scenes, but an important tool in all of this is social media. So mm -hmm. how do you view it and how do you use it for yourself? Because I view social media as kind of, essentially like a networking tool. It gives me insight into like what people are doing. I know it's like a curated version of themselves, but still I feel like I learn a lot about different parts of the world, what people are doing that's interesting. So how, how, what's your view on social media and like how do you use it for the space that you're in? So it's been, uh, you know, I mentioned before as well about my space. I mean, from that point in time, it's been a part of my life. And it still is a very intrinsic part of my life. I'm trying to curate a little less of it these days than I used to, just because some of my work now requires me to network in a very different way. 
And that involves a lot more privacy, for example. So I am trying to balance that out in, in, a, in a stronger way, but it is essential. I think all of us need to be on it. Having a digital presence, I mean, every time I give a talk, a career talk, whether it's at my old university at Royal Holloway, or you know, whether it's at you know, uh, giving some kind of keynote at LSE, I always say this one thing, the most vital thing in your life at the moment is your digital CV. So getting on LinkedIn is essential. It's something that I ignored for a long time. And honestly, I'm not getting a lot of opportunities on LinkedIn, but I'm getting opportunities via LinkedIn. And that makes a huge difference. Having a presence on Facebook, you know, Facebook for me is more about a certain type of fan and family. You know, Instagram is again, where I, I discover creators. And Facebook was, I have to, to admit that a lot of the early musicians I found were, were on Facebook. In fact, it was Priya Raghu, in fact, let's just go back to Priya Raghu because she's experiencing immense success at the moment. It's wonderful because I knew her during MySpace days and then she went on, you know, and she was, she was just a kid then, you know, so sitting in Switzerland and we had connected. Then we became Facebook friends and then I interviewed her. And it's just wonderful to see that journey. And this is all a part of our lives these days. And, you know, you have to then say, well, I'm, I'm going to get on to the next platform and the next platform, but use it wisely. Like for me, I'm not a big TikTok person. I'm, I can't dance to save my life. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I may need to think about creating TikTok friendly content at some point because, you know, the way some of these are growing, you have to look at them. It's like looking at stocks and shares and making a decision. Do I want to be a part of Clubhouse? Do I want to be a part of TikTok? So these are all things that that we evolve with and say, actually, should I just be a Lily Singh and create a, a YouTube channel and will people watch me? And that's the thing with fame. You don't know. You don't know whether anyone is going to like anything you're doing. Will anyone find you? Will anyone be interested? These are things that you have to keep assessing every day. Well, I think you mentioned a good analogy, which is it's kind of like stocks or like investments. You get to choose. And I would say just like investments, you have to choose what you're comfortable with, whether it's like level of risk, what kind of investment, you know. So for me, my personal thing is I always like to try to find avenues that other people aren't looking at, or it's like less heralded. So like right now, Instagram, TikTok are kind of the ones that obviously are popular. But for me, I'm like, oh, LinkedIn is like, I feel like this underrated darling where, you know, I've met a lot of connections, you know, got a lot of exposure through LinkedIn, but it's not really that heralded. But like, that's like, I find like a very useful tool, just like you kind of mentioned. So also Twitter, I think is like that too. I just haven't really figured out how to use it yet. So yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've been a Twitter user since maybe 2007, and it's something that took me also a while to find a footing. Like, what am I trying to say to people? What is it I'm championing? And with time, it's, it's proven to be really useful. And one thing I would say to people, don't be dissuaded by lack of figures. I mean, we all are. Even it's like, oh, why don't they like this picture is what you're thinking. But actually, a lot of people are looking at that. They might not click like on it. But, you know, if you bump into them, they'll tell you they've seen it. <laughs> so some of those analytics don't mean as much as what you're making of that, that, you know, platform. And every one of those is a platform for you. Put your best foot forward. I mean, you know, part of it is, you know, these days there's that, oh, the dirty pictures that you put on there, as in not, not the sexualized ones, but just, you know, of you lounging around. That might work for some people. 
you know, all those really, really pristine pictures that are photoshopped that you put on there that some people love. So it's it's that thing that you you can't judge how this will go and what people will like. So you just do 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 you. My husband always says, you just do you. <laughs> you know, you just do you and and be awesome and people will come if 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 they want to come, you know, and I'm hoping that 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 works for me. Money can be hard to come by, but here is a $100 opportunity for you. Join my free newsletter for free exclusive content and a free chance to win $100 when I hold special draws. Did I mention that it's free? I guess, I guess something that I want to touch on was we talked a lot about kind of work, but what does Ashanti like to do outside of work? Like You talked about being a foodie, but what are some other things that you kind of enjoy doing when you're not working? Wow. So because all my passions are my work, there's always a little touch of, you know, even if I'm cooking something, like I must document this bit so I remember it, just in case I have to talk about it on a podcast or write about it somewhere. Um, I like, you know, I like to go shopping. I like to go on walks, those sorts of things. I love going and, you know, and, and part of it is this, this dual thing of if I go on a holiday, Yes, I will be taking lovely pictures of myself and seeing the sunsets. And I will also try and meet up with key people in that region if I can. And all of these three things, are they're fun for me. So I don't see them as work, but they are networking opportunities in many ways. And sometimes, you know, and, and for my husband, for example, he, I mean, he has his own podcast now, the Swinging Palm Trees podcast. And he created that after many years he had studied radio, he was the one who went to media, you know, he went to Goldsmiths and studied media. And I was the one who didn't do any of that. I didn't learn any of what I'm putting out now. But he used to find it really grating that I would want my picture taken. And he's a photographer, but still he would be like, <laughs> are you making me take this picture? You know, and I'd say, I want this angle. I want you to hold the camera above or whatever. And it, it used to really irk him. Even to date, you know, sometimes it just really irks him that I'm asking him these, these questions. <laughs> And I always used to say, trust me, it'll pay off. And he used to say, why are you taking pictures of the food? Why? And now, you know, we get invited to things because I take great pictures of food. And now he's like, oh, it, you know what? I now understand. So <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very weird and funny, funny landscape. And I, I think that we just have to just do what we believe and hope for the best. No, definitely. Um, what's an insecurity that you have? Oh gosh, my chin. So <laughs> as, as we speak, listeners, I'm looking at Aaron and giving him my best pose rather than one where he can't see, see my chin. I'm very co conscious of my chin. Mm. Okay. I think everybody is, right? That double chin is something that worries people and the, the wrong angle of a camera can make you look horrible. And I hate cameras in general. I hate looking <laughs> at photos of myself, etc. That's why I like to take photos of others. So oh. I agree with you. Um, what 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 keeps you going like what is your big life why like what yeah drives you wow what drives me i think it's just a, a basal passion for three things so back in the day it was always being unsure of which three things and this guy anup uh, sugunan from america he's a he's a guitarist and a you know he has a band and he sings and he's also a filmmaker and i met him through air rahman and he he was in so I'd, I'd met him online actually before he came to england and ar was touring in the uk and anup and i got to hang out and he said to me that 
all he wanted to do was two things, music and film. And he said everything he does in life will revolve around those two things. So even if he's eating, you know, he'll be thinking, how, how am I going to film that? Or if I was depicting the, this in film, how would I do it? So this really made me think, because I'd spent like a day with him in Greenwich and we really talked. And here I was talking to a creative because there are so few. And he's a, you know, Keralaite who grew up in LA, who was this pure creative guy. And his parents were cool with him, you know, having a band and being, the, being this guy who was doing these shoots. And chatting with him really opened my eyes. And I thought, what are those, what are the things? What if there was just only one thing, what would I pick? And I think I would pick film. But I decided at that point uh, onwards that there would be three things I would do at all times. It would be film, music, and food. So I like to revolve everything I do around it. And it's through that lens. And someone else who inspired me was Jyotsna Srikant, this violinist in, you know, she used to live in the UK. She came from Bengaluru, settled in the UK, created her own music festival, toured all around the world, decided to move back to Bangalore. And, you know, she she's this amazing woman. She was a doctor who decided to quit medicine and become a musician. So me and her became like almost like soul sisters in some ways. And she used she she curated this festival called the London International Arts Festival. And she she made it, you know, though it was called it it has a very kind of broad title and name. She would have groups from Sweden and from Denmark and Norway, as well as UK groups. And it was an incredible festival. She still still does it even online. She manages to pull off this festival. And something she said to me at that point was she said, everything I curate is through the lens of Carnatic music. So I might be listening to someone who's doing Norwegian folk, but I am listening in for those ragas. And I could I could immediately you know, understand what she was saying, because that's exactly what I do wherever I go. If I hear that, you know, I've heard African music that has certain ragas. It's like, whoa, this guy has just played Amrita but he's from Mali, you know, and it's happened to me. Those kind of moments have happened to me where I've just thought, wow, this is actually there. The world is really, it's really global. It's not just, you know, and, and music has been that connector for me. So when she said that to me, I just thought, okay, so for me, I like that South Asian thing. That's my lens from, from my culture and my upbringing. But I also want to see a Marvel movie and see someone who is imbibing that, or I want to connect it with a Hindu myth. You know, when we see a lot of stuff in Hollywood, you know, you watch it, you watch The Matrix, etc., and you think, Actually, I can. I've heard these stories from my parents, or Amartya Chitta Kada that I read when I, you know, when I was a child. We have seen these stories from Hinduism that have been returned again and again in different ways, and and those just don't, they they don't go away. They're just going to continue in that that vein. And a lot of comic book writers were inspired by Hinduism, etc. And those of us who kind of grew up in it, and I didn't really know much about the the you know the religious side of me. But I've, I've grown to know about it and learn about it. And that's been super exciting. So our creativity, I think, comes from our ancestors in many ways. What would you, if you had a conversation to like go back in a time machine and talk to 16-year-old Ashanti, yeah. what, would you, what would you tell her? I would tell her to, to follow her heart at all points. And I would tell her to never, you know, to never back down because there have been so many moments in my life where I have backed down, where I thought this is not a job for women. I've believed people who have 
tried to stifle me. And honestly, I've done really well for myself, all things considered, and having grown up in the patriarchy. <laughs> but the truth is that, you know, if I went back and had to say that to myself, I would say, don't back down. Like, look, if you want to do music, just do music. Don't don't say that, oh, I'll, I'll also do this or I'll try this or, because I, I feel like I've lost critical years of my life you know, not doing certain things that I could have done. But on the other hand, I always weigh it up and I always think that, you know, the corporate stuff I did has really stood me in good stead mm -hmm. to what I do now. It's made me methodical. I look at processes and I make, you know, make those connections really well. And it does make life a lot easier for me when I'm working with, you know, especially working with creatives because they can be really out there. But then if you can kind of hone them in and say, okay, this is what I want, da, da, da. And to be, and that's where the, your kind of corporate knowledge can come in. So it's it's a tale of two cities, but yes, certainly I would say to my younger self that, look, if someone says you can't do it, like for example, as a critic of color, as a brown woman, you know, you're always told you should be getting married by age 21. And by 25, you need to have those two, two kids and live in that house ideally to a Tamil man, you know, mm -hmm. or a very, you know, good caste Indian, you know, as long as he's not Muslim, you know, this is, these are the things that you hear growing up from all quarters, you know, everybody at the temple is looking at your sari. If you put on two pounds, somebody has noticed and said, oh, you're double the size you were last week. <laughs> yeah. People are coming at you all the time and you're facing a lot of critique. And, you know, when I was younger and I still am quite mouthy and I am, I'm, I'm not, not that person who kind of sits very quietly and I can rub people off, off the wrong way because they have said something to me that might have triggered me in some way. But sometimes it's, it's, it's okay. I think sometimes we beat ourselves up about reacting like that, but sometimes it's like, well, maybe you educated someone and if you never see them again, heck, there's another 7 billion people you can meet. Yeah, I think your comment about <laughs> You know, for me, I've done some jobs like while I was pursuing, say, entrepreneurship or other things that I didn't really enjoy. It was kind of just to pay the bills. But the things I learned from those jobs actually helped me immensely. Like I did like inside sales jobs, which are kind of like the toughest jobs in sales where you're making 100 calls a day, you're testing all these different things. But by doing that and kind of being immune to all the no's and like things that I've heard, it made me it made it easier to like reach out to people to do interviews or when I'm doing my startup to like do sales like it's more of a, it's it feels like a joke compared to kind of how bad it used to be when I had to do inside sales so I agree with that comment um the yeah, another question I want to kind of get into and like it's a it's a one that some guests have trouble thinking about maybe you put some thought into it is personal legacy if you were to ask your friends and family to describe the legacy that you would you know that you think they would say or describe you as sorry the way they would describe your legacy how would they talk about your legacy in a few sentences definitely a disruptor a firecracker ideally if they would call me a phenomenal woman mm -hmm. like Maya Angelou always said I would love that and I, I think everyone would say that I don't mince my words I'm, you know, I'm I'm not the best diplomat in that sense. I try and, you know, in Tamil we say adakivasi, you know, it's like adakivasi, just rein it in a bit. And sometimes <laughs> I have to remind myself to do that. But but yeah, I, I hope that people will see this legacy because again, you know, it's something I touched upon before that being childless means that, you know, already a whole strata of Tamil society has said, 
you're barren woman, you know, you're, you're not, you know, up there, we see you as being lower than the rest of us, because you can't have children, and you won't have children. What are you leaving behind as a legacy? And for me, my legacy is about opening doorways and pathways and saying, okay, like, for example, last year, I was part of the mentorship uh, program for young critics of color at the London Film Festival. That for me was such a rewarding thing to be able to do, because the next generation is there. And I've had a lot of uh, young people say to me that look because you did it we are pursuing this you know I decided to go for that job at the BBC instead of doing what my parents wanted me to do which would have been a very much more solid very professional the thing is I think a lot of Tamil people can't tell the difference between being a professional broadcaster and like so you know for me I'm like if I'm a professional broadcaster and you're a professional doctor or an engineer I don't see us as being, you know, one of us as being lower than the other. But to a lot of Tamil people, I think that is still something that they don't quite see. And I'm just very happy that slowly but surely we have people breaking through those those chains. And I'm glad that I was one of those people who had to make that path for myself. Amazing. Well, that's kind of a good segue into the final segment, which I like to call Creator Confessions. So it's going to be like a fun speed round. I'm going to say a bunch of statements. It's meant to kind of have very quick answers. Are you ready, Ashanti? I'm ready. Awesome. So, favorite Tamil food? Nanda curry. <laughs> uh, something that scares you? Ooh, dogs. Uh, favorite movie of all time? Oh, gosh. You know what? I'm just going to say Nayagan. Mani Ratnam's Nayagan. Oh, yeah. Good it movie. makes me cry every single time. Great movie. Uh, a place you're itching to travel to after the pandemic is over? Oof. Oh, can I only pick one or can I pick a few? Only, only one. one. Oh, arrow. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know what? I would love to go to the Seychelles. So I will mm. put that out there. Uh, uh, a favorite show that you're currently watching? Oh, a favorite. Gosh, I'm watching so many different shows. Um, actually, Miracle Workers. It's it's not the latest series because I'm just catching up on it, but I actually really like it. And it has someone who's half Tamil in it, uh, Geraldine Vishwanathan. Oh, yes. Oh, she's in it. Okay. Yes. And half Swiss and it's uh, and and via Australia. She's really cool. I interviewed her last year and I, I've tried to catch up with everything she's done. And this was on my list. And very recently I've started watching it. It's good. Interesting. Uh, fellow Tamil creator, you want to give a shout out to? Ooh. Oh my gosh. Wow. Uh, Maitre Ramakrishnan. Favorite childhood memory? Ooh, favorite childhood memory. You know what? One of my favorite memories is walking with my grandmother in Colombo, my dad's mother. And uh, she, she was this woman who had all the different gods in her little shrine at home. She had all the different gods. So she would have a Jesus, she would have a Krishna. She would have a Lord Shiva, all these different deities. And she was very open, you know, she was very open. And that was a really warm feeling because she took me on a walk once. And I've only met her a few times in my life. We went back only on holidays to, to Sri Lanka. And uh, she walked me to a church. And I just remember going into that church and, you know, me being tiny and huge, huge church. And I found that, you know, that, that is one of my favorite memories, I'd say. Hmm. A pet peeve of yours. Oh, pet peeve. I hate bigots. <laughs> <laughs> um, person or celebrity that you look up to? 
Wow. Um, I certainly love, can it be from any? Any, any? Yep, anybody. Mindy Kaling. Mindy Kaling, okay. If you knew half that you were going to, pardon? She's half Tamil. Yes, love Mindy Kaling. <laughs> um, if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, a regret that you would have. Uh, oh, gosh, you know what? I truly believe that I won't have any because honestly, to date, I have surpassed all those things that I ever wanted to do with myself. And I live day by day because my health had got to that stage where we were, re it was a very dicey stage. We just didn't know what was going to happen with it. And I, I truly like to think that I, you know, for me, that being alive every day keeps me going and makes me very happy. So I think I will, will hopefully pass away without any regrets. It's beautiful. Uh, age you want to retire by, when I say retire, I'll preface it by saying ownership of tide, not the traditional definition. So do what you want when you want. I already do that. I mean, in the sense that yes, up to an extent, I have certain, you know, uh, timetables or deadlines to, to, to follow, but I have, and I'm very, very thankful for that, is that I have the ability to control my timetable. So for example, I love staying up late. I love waking up late. I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, I must wake up at 4 a.m. My husband, on the other hand, wakes up at 4 a.m., <laughs> his base practice, reads the Bible, you know, works on his podcast. I'm one of those people who does all these things in the evening. And, you know, so I already feel like I'm very much in control of my time. And again, this goes back to my health issues because I have been blessed with employers who've understood that I need this, this kind of creator space. And I don't kind of work towards those very traditional deadlines, but at the same time, the corporate me does switch on. So if I know that something has to go out, for example, with the, with the film festival I'm working on, we have a press release that we have to get out. And of course, I've already sent a template, chased the people, all of this. So it's, it's something that inherently comes to me, but at the same time, you know, at the same time, I can, like, for example, before our podcast, I was able to watch The Tomorrow War, you know, an early, early, early preview of that film that's hitting Amazon Prime soon. You know, last night I was at the Black Widow premiere, at, uh, you know, in central London. So I'm able to juggle that. So yesterday I could just say, okay, halfway through the day, we decided, you know, my husband had to he had to work a whole day. So he had to put in, you know, he worked through lunch. He started work an hour earlier. Whereas on, on my side of things, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm done. 3 p.m., I'm ready to go. Let's go and have an early dinner. <laughs> go and see that. Just make a day of it, you know, make a half day of it. So I'm able to do that already. And I, like you said, the traditional says, I like that you, you put that in there because for me, I will never retire. I will always push these passions. I'm always going to be fighting for diversity and inclusion and representation and things that I didn't think about growing up. Honestly, I never thought about it. I never saw myself as being oppressed in any way in that sense, but I, I see it. I see these little pockets of racism and where it's endemic in media, for example. And now I'm, I'm kind of woke to that. I'm on a quest. And that's a quest that'll never, there's always going to be something where, you know, you're fighting for someone via Time's Up for Me Too, or you're fighting for, for somebody, you know, who, who's not, not able to, uh, to, to rise up because of their skin color. There's so much for us to keep fighting for. For sure. So no retirement for me, basically. <laughs> 
a celebrity whose life you want to experience for one day? Ooh, Kamala Harris. Okay. <laughs> and finally, a public service announcement that you want to leave our audience with. So it could be advice, it could be specifically to people in media, just anything you want to leave our audience with. Wow, I would say always, always follow your heart. Your intuition is going to tell you things. There's going to be certain people that physically will make you sick. And <laughs> <laughs> you should be ready to move away from like that detachment. It's very hard. We are taught as, as people to always be nice to everyone, etc. But sometimes burning those bridges is not a bad thing. And you will find that you can rebuild a different bridge. You know, it, it, some, because, because, you know, nasty people are there. You just have to, to live around them. And I feel that sometimes you, you know, you might beat yourself up about it, but sometimes just make that break when you know it's right. Don't, don't get stuck in a rut. You know, if you, if you feel that, okay, this corner is, you know, I've done lots in this corner, but I want to move out of it. Like I've done with the BBC Asian Network, I will continue my work as a film critic across the BBC. But the Asian Network show is something that I feel like I've outgrown in some ways. I've done everything I can. I had Air Rahman on every year of the show. I've had Idris Elba talk about, you know, India. I've had Will I Am speak, speaking about India. I've had a lot of, you know, big star Shah Rukh Khan telling us about his South Indian roots. Uh, I've had Priyanka Chopra who has Malayali roots, et cetera, et cetera. And I just feel like, you know, I can do other things in other spaces. And this just feels like very fortuitous timing, timing that you've reached out to me, Ara, because I admire what you're doing as an entrepreneur and creating that mindset, that kind of growth mindset is something we, a lot of us just weren't born with. We were always in those confines and in school, I mean, you're just pushed into rote learning, let's be honest. So coming out of that and, and breaking out, I think is so important. And I'm glad that there are people like you who are showing the way. Thank you so much. Well, that's a great way to kind of end off today's uh, podcast. Thank you so much, Ashanti, for kind of jumping on and sharing, you know, your years of, you know, experience and wisdom. I think people are going to like really love this episode. Um, if somebody's listening to this and they're like, hey, they want to connect with you, they're inspired by what you're saying. Uh, what's the best way for them to get connected with you? So I am Ashanti Omkar on all platforms. <laughs> so okay. you can find me if you need to email me, there's an email address on on my website. So you can just go to ashantiomkar.com and I'm just at ashantiomkar everywhere, but don't at me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> if you need to at me, it's fine. But I prefer emails. Honestly, I'll have to say this. I do prefer emails to DMs. The DM space is okay. Do you agree? Like Yes, I, I work, I use my email as my to-do list. So I prefer everything centralized there. I, I don't like the DMs because I often forget to like respond versus like emails i'm like very methodical so exactly yeah. And, yeah. and also i just feel like a lot of people on dms just want to it's a waste of time because you're going backwards and forwards on, on this chat and sometimes it's useful but a lot of the time you can put it into an email it's like this face-to-face -face meetings you can cut a lot of clutter yep. in any kind of process driven workforce by just writing good emails just learn the etiquette and do it. <laughs> I love emails and I love people that can write good emails. I, I, I use DMs as kind of almost like a prompt, like, you know, on WhatsApp, I might message or Facebook, somewhere I know where they check, but I won't put the message there. I feel like I'll put it to email, but I'll be like, hey, by the way, I sent you an email, check it out. And then this way it kind of stays there. But 
I know some people Maybe don't like that. I love that. That is the ideal process. People follow it, please. <laughs> well, you know, there you got it. And, you know, if you really want to stand out, folks, send uh, Ashanti a TikTok video because as you, as you heard, she wants to kind of step up her game there. So uh, thank you again for kind of jumping on, Ashanti. I really appreciate it. And for those of you listening, appreciate you guys as always listening and uh, look forward to the next episode. Thank you so much. Thank you.